Thank you for downloading this Device Talks radio podcast brought to you by MassDevice.com. This interview with Carol Neubauer, CEO of Bebron Medical, was recorded live at our Device Talks West show on November 19th, 2014 in Irvine, California. To see one of our Device Talks shows or learn hear other podcasts, go to www.devicetalks.com for more information. Thank you for downloading this Device Talks podcast. The Device Tax. And so since its inception, um, you've been one of the most vocal critics of this tax. And now that uh, the control of the House and the Senate has shifted over to GOP control, and it looks on the surface at least, that this is the best chance the industry has um, to repeal the tax. I want to kind of dig into, dig into this here in terms of what the impact has been. So when we look back in five years, Assuming this gets repealed in the next congressional session, you know, we'll be really optimistic and rosy because this is all device guys. So we'll just say, you know, Q1, it gets rolled back, gets repealed, um, and, and it's now a, a piece of history. We look back five years. What are these two years in terms of, like, what impact has this tax had in total, do you think? What, what will we say about the, these two years and the and the lead-up years about it in terms of its total sort of collateral damage? Well, first of all, this tax is going to go. I'm totally convinced. And we can get maybe into that later because mm -hmm. everybody who talks at the moment, if it's the majority leader in the House, everybody's saying the first sentence they have is the med tax has to go. So first of all, I'm totally convinced. And I've been fighting for this for two and a half years. I burned my tongue more than once. Uh, I've made enemies. I have made, uh, I've, I've not lost friends, but friends that doubted me at the beginning. Uh, and uh, I tell you, ultimately, everybody's, now everybody's on my bandwagon when it's getting easier. But uh, um, what has it done? Well, what has it done at Bebron? I didn't let anybody go. Didn't cut my R&D budget. Nope, didn't do that. Everybody said that's what they'll do. I didn't. What did I do? We didn't invest in a major new headquarters which was going to have an academy educational facility for our sales force, for physicians, nurses, and hospital administration. State of the art. I just couldn't build it. Didn't have the cash flow. Taken away, that was probably, that's probably a $40 million project. Didn't build it. I just stopped it. In its tracks at that moment and said, I'm going to, the cash is going to go somewhere else. Can't do this right now. There are other colleagues of mine who have truly let people go. There are others who have transferred jobs abroad. Uh, and I don't want to put anybody on the spot here and, and mention names, but you all know the AdvoMed study, which said we've already lost 33,000 jobs, and I believe that. I know most of the CEOs, or if not all of them, from the larger medical device companies. All of us have taken some sort of action. You can't just take away millions, tens of millions, from the bottom line and not think that we can't react. We have to. Mm -hmm. And that's what we did. And I hate to say that... Not everything that went away is going to come back. Even if the tax is repealed, jobs that went away are not all going to come back. Let's not be foolish. But let's hope that we can create new jobs with that money when it comes back. But uh, you got it right. I'm cooking already. So what else? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I guess uh, I have, at some points, and I, I, I do agree with you in that the tax has been very damaging, and, and studies we have done have said that you know it's just basically a completely inefficient tax. It's not raised nearly half of what it was supposed to raise, and it's had a disproportionate impact. That, I think, is a, sort of an inarguable, inarguable point. I, I guess 
I have been struck by the veracity at points with which the industry fought the tax. And I'm just wondering, I mean, I remember a few years ago there was a study that was touted where they were, where what that, that was kind of being pushed forward, where they were saying, well, uh, if you look at the pricing over the last five years of devices, there's been significant price erosion in the cost of these devices. And, and then there was all these stories about layoffs, and, and, and the, dev- the, the tax kind of created this really negative narrative in the industry. And I, I'm just wondering if you ever think, you know, maybe it's late at night or, and you don't want to admit it, but do you ever think, geez, maybe we went too far with that one? I mean... You know, maybe. What, maybe what, what did we go well, too far with? with well, I mean, do you going th- against the tax? What, no, was there a, ever a risk of creating a deflationary environment with the with it, about the industry in total in, in fighting this tax? I don't see how can you be wrong fighting taxes. <laughs> Period. <laughs> but Brian, honestly, we have the highest corporate tax rate, except for one country. I think it's Sweden in the world. And then you sort out our industry, and you say, we're going to put an additional tax up on you. How much sense does that make if you've got one of the few industries that's still growing that is a net exporter in this country, which is an innovative pusher, which creates jobs, the best-paying jobs, by the way. If you compare our, our industry with our I, I hate these things. <laughs> so uh, um, how, could you, how could you not fight this tax? It is, it is a stupid tax. By the way, Orrin Hatch said that, too. Um, he and I see eye to eye on this, that's for sure. Um, so I think fighting this tax and getting it back and having it repealed is absolutely the right thing to do for our employees, for our companies, for our shareholders. By the way, and up and most for our patients, because we're taking away innovation. What we do every day, we take care of patients. We wake up and we think about patients. And if you take that money away, you're also taking it away from our patients, believe it or not. And then you hear these politicians that say, well, you're just going to pass it on. Well, first of all, they don't understand our industry at all. Who has GPO contracts? Everybody have GPO contracts? Yeah. Can you cancel those tomorrow and say, I'm going to increase my prices? And if you could increase your prices, then it's just putting it into a circle. You give it to the government, the government gives it to you. If you just put it into the circle. No way does this tax make sense. Mm-hmm. It's just a stupid tax. That's why it should be fought. Now, you say, should you really fought it? Have you overdone it? Well, nobody's fought this tax more than me, so I'm not the right guy to ask. <laughs> so there was never, it was, it was never a moment of doubt. This was worth whatever it took to. I don't know whatever it took. Well, I, I don't think we went overboard on it, but okay. we got. Let's take it. The House has already passed four bills to repeal it. By the, by the way, the last one, what a lot of people missed is, has a reimbursement for the last two years of it, too. I love it. Yeah, so that I, Not even I brought that up. <laughs> yeah, well. Okay, so that reimbursement. But it also, uh, uh, we had four bills in the House that went through with a majority bipartisan support. We had a symbolic vote in the Senate, 79 to 20. I know it's not 21. One senator wasn't there. I know there's 100 of them. Um, uh, 79 to 20, symbolic vote to repeal the tax. From practically the beginning, this stupid tax has bipartisan support to be repealed. I don't know how we can go overboard when that's how it started. So that's a no. (laughs) (laughs) Brought me up cooking. Uh, Um, I'm almost afraid to ask this one. Uh, (laughs) 
you, then you should be. Well, then oh, I yeah. should ask it. Um, so another, I saw yet another analyst point out the argument over the tax that it was a distraction from the rising cost of health care. And he said that the result that, that, that health care costs are rising because of, quote, anti-competitive practices between physicians and suppliers and supplier companies at, at hospitals. And this is a frequent counter that you hear from opponents of repeal. Say that again. Would be, what's he saying? <laughs> He's obviously not from our industry. <laughs> what did he say? He said that there's a rising cost of health care, and that's the real issue, and that that is a result of, quote, anti-competitive practices. Now, this is not just one guy. I don't want to just say it's one voice. You know what? If there is one competitive industry, this is it. No. I believe, honestly, this is an industry. How our prices drop down when new competition comes in, how we have to fight for market share, how we have to take, stay on top with innovation to stay in business. I, this is as competitive as it gets. Mm -hmm. I truly, I mean, car makers have nothing in comparison to what we have to do. And if you look at the variety that we have, that is one baloney statement. Yeah. It's truly a baloney statement. And if you see how our prices decrease consistently if we don't stay on the cutting edge. Innovation is, is something that keeps your prices up. That is true. And it should be because innovation costs a lot of money. It really takes a lot of money to get things approved more than ever. We can get into that if you really want to bring my blood up. But um, it, So from that point of view, to say that we are anti-competitive, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what GPOs are. They don't know what purchasing uh, uh, departments are in hospitals. Uh, they just don't understand how this whole thing functions. So you, you talked a little bit about how you guys countered this, you know, the sort of it's not an unforeseen levy, how you countered this levy. Uh, you did pay freezes, correct? Did you freeze pay? I, oh, yes, actually I did. Okay. I, and one year there was no increase for okay. our employees. The first year we didn't increase their and, and, you, and you're not going to build this project. So when this is repealed, uh, I mean, are you going to commit to reinstating all those actions that you didn't do? Well, we kind of caught up last year a little bit with the, with the, with the increase for the employees because, you know, I wanted to send a signal, but I didn't want to hurt my people. And once we saw that we could shift through with it and cash flow wise everything was okay we kind of made up for it not completely but partially so the answer is yes mm -hmm. we would the second thing is yes we will build the new facility and the training facility great that's what and you know what those are hundreds of jobs i mean 40 million dollar project i haven't done one for quite a time at least not administration building but that's a lot of bodies building them too over a couple of years those are jobs too that are not directly associated with the medical device industry but have also gone away at least for the time being so let's also now look at the, the broader Affordable Care Act. And we're also, God, I don't want to say two years in, but I think we're actually a little longer than that. And yeah, me too, I'm have, afraid. Uh, have you, in your internal sort of studies on how the Affordable Care Act's implementation has impacted your business outside of the device tax, positive and negative, where has it been for you guys in terms of what you've seen? Well, one thing well, it's been one sure. year since we've had. They've always said it will bring additional business. That's baloney. Mm -hmm. If you look at the, my competition, nobody's growing. You know, one or two or percent. So if you look around, the growth is not there. There's no big influx of patients and treatments that everybody said, and we'll make up with the medical device tax with additional uh, insured. It's baloney. We all know that. Just had uh, Secretary Sebelius tell me the same thing. On the one hand, she says, but healthcare is expensive. In the same speech, she says, well, healthcare spending is slowing down and actually uh, uh, declining. And then she says to me when I say about the medical device tax, she says, well, you're going to finance from your increased sales 
on the uh, newly insured. Wait. So it has not been a increase in revenue. What we do see, because everybody's expecting the Medicare cuts, is that the hospitals are saying, so what are you going to do for me? Mm -hmm. I'm quite sure all of you have had that discussion. You know, uh, I was just asked a question in another interview. Uh, weren't you that? Oh, no, you were that. Exactly, Brian, at AdvaMed, at the MedTech conference. Yeah. You asked me, you said, they want to cost 15 to, they want to cut 15, 20 percent of their budgets, and they want that from the medical device manufacturers. As I told you, well, even if they take away all the medical devices, which is about 6 percent of their budget, they would only reach one-third of what they want to do, even if we would give them everything for free. So it's not going to come from us. Oh, sorry about that. I hope I didn't hurt anybody. Uh, so it's not going to come from us. So I think we're seeing budget, more budget-conscious hospitals. That will have an impact when it comes to medical devices. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we've got to see what the M M M uh, MSSP, the ACOs, are going to do, the, the Medicare sharing, service, uh, sharing program. Uh, we've got to see what those – it's not really made that much of an impact from my business perspective yet, except mm -hmm. those kind of discussions and the fear for big budget cuts due to Medicare uh, cuts. I wanted to jump back into sort of the cost of medicine because it seems like the industry is consistently fighting a perception that it's somehow gouging the healthcare system. Um, this is really turned negative, Brian. You're such a oh, positive no, no, person. No, no. These are thought-provoking okay. questions. <laughs> it made so much sense on the warm-up. Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And I'm going to go back to something that, in particular, uh, we were we saw last year a bunch of stories in the New York Times, sort of about the cost of healthcare. And I think one of them. But that wasn't against devices. That was more against the hospitals. Not well, it was the in particular. I'm talking about that. That okay. So there was a really provocative title. It said how to charge $546 for, for, six, for six liters of salt water. Yeah. Um, for which they pay 90 cents. Right. Okay. As a maker of these products, how do you respond to stories like that? I know that that one was. was well, how do you? First of all, that had nothing to do with manufacturing. That is the untransparency and the master system in the hospital. Right. That was how hospitals charge, and there are cr crazy things like that. And what people forget is you don't pay five hundred dollars for that ninety cent IV bag. You, that's the whole treatment that goes with it and everything. It just looks like that, but the treatment is actually in that how they calculate and do that, and they know that they don't get a large part of their money. So how do I answer that? We've got to make the charging system more transparent. I'm the first one who would agree that that's the case, uh, that hospitals, we have to understand, go to your insurer as a big employer and try to find out how that really works. You, you won't even find out from your insurance company. The insurance company won't find out from the hospitals. They negotiate it and how it's then done. Then they ha you have a whole different charge system for those patients who are not insured. Because the higher you charge them, the more you can put in your balance sheet as voluntary or, or in your PL as voluntary expenses, right? That's what you do. So it's a whole mess. It's because it's a messy system, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. That's where it is. But it has little to do with us. I always hear just was a PA bio event, and they, uh, I, one of the questions was there too. We were sitting like this, and he says, Well, what about why aren't your prices transparent? I'm like, What? Have you ever worked with a GPO? I have contracts with all major GPOs. Major, average hospital belongs to 2.2 GPOs. They can look into three GPO prices and they're very transparent. Everybody say, what is there not to be transparent? We're absolutely transparent. 
And I hear this baloney because one or two companies have secretive agree, uh, uh, clauses in their, agree, in, their, in their agreements with hospitals and GPOs, which we don't have. So don't say the whole industry is not transparent. We're very transparent. The GPOs keep us honest and keep us transparent, at least for my business. So, I mean, the average American, you know, sits there and goes, well, why is, the, why is my health care bill so damn high? And how do you explain that? I mean, when someone comes to you and says, gee whiz, like, I've got to see the bill. Most people, the problem is, Brian, most people don't even see that bill. Mm -hmm. Most people see their deductible and they're never informed. That's also a problem. That's why a lot of people take health care for granted just because I don't care what it costs. The insurance company pays for it. I pay my deductible. I would bet not even 5% of the people in this country actually see a bill of those insured. So from that perspective, I don't think people are complaining it's too, too high. Are health care expenses too high? Yes, they are. We've discussed that before. Mm. We're on an unsustainable chart. We can't increase every year like this. Otherwise, I don't know, I saw calculations. By 2030, one-third of our GDP will be used in health care. Personally, I would like that, but it's not a sustainable model. So from that point of view, we have to do things. And why are we that much more expensive than other industrial nations, like in Europe and everywhere else? Those are questions we have to ask. We have inefficiencies, and we, as a supplier, are obligated to help our health care providers find more efficient and cost-effective ways to provide health care. Mm -hmm. And that's what we do. We really try to do stuff. But theoretically, I mean, the technology is getting better and better, so we should be bending the cost curve, correct? I don't know. That, 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 I don't, I'm not, yes and Normal no. market dynamics yes don't work no. on this? First of all, new stuff doesn't come for free. Right. There's a lot of stuff that we couldn't treat 10 years ago. We didn't know what to do with it. We have devices today, take just 40 years ago. Your knee was blown out, you were done. Mm -hmm. Well, then we came up with knees. Isn't that cool? But they don't come for free. Before you were in a roll chair, uh, wheelchair, right? For the rest of your 20 or 30 year life that you might have had left. And now you're walking again. That didn't come for free. That mm -hmm. knee operation cost 10 times as much as a wheelchair. Yet, if you were still that mailman who's now gonna work another 10 years, then that 30,000 is nothing. Because you put somebody back to, into work for 10 years, who otherwise would just call, cost our social security system a lot of money. And now he's not only not costing us money, he's paying taxes for she. So think about that. That's the part of the equation that never gets told of. So, and as we find more and more cures, we're probably gonna be spending more. But hopefully in proportion less because we're doing it more effective and efficient. And we at Bebron, we're thinking about that every day with our EV pumps or doing it with our sets and our kits, we're always trying to make the system more efficient. And with electronic health records and with the whole wiring of the hospitals and the operating systems and everybody and everything and everybody talking to everything, I'm quite sure that we will be effective in helping hospitals and healthcare providers being more cost effective in providing health care. That has to be our goal. While not, while not at any time negatively impacting the quality of care. Mm -hmm. It always, we always have to have the quality of care and the patients on the top of their mind. Everybody in my organization knows, first thing you think about is the patient. It goes on from there. One of the things that I find really interesting about Bebron, and, and you know, while the brand is very recognizable, I don't think people understand the breadth of 
products you guys have. I mean, yeah. you're talking I'm about. I'm not quite sure I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's uh, that I read in one of your recent annual reports, annual reports, that it's like 30,000 different products. And, and it, you, I think it's you how you define it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you're in almost as many or as many markets as Johnson and Johnson is in terms of product categories. Or? When it when it comes from the width, quite sure. Yeah. Uh, that that it, we have products that they don't have, and we have products that we don't have. But when it comes to width of the product, over 175 years, it's just developed so broadly mm -hmm. uh, that we are really in so many areas. It's hard. Sometimes you say 30,000 products, and we have well, actually we have 5,000 products, but we have 120,000 different SKUs. So it really define what a product is. You know, is an IV catheter uh, with and without a wing, or those two products, or one product? You could debate that forever. But wow, do we have a lot of products. And it goes, and, and, it, and we do electronics, and we do metal, and we do uh, uh, plastics, and we do wood, and we do uh, electronics, everything you can imagine. We work with all the technologies that are out there. So you're, I mean, you're pretty much embedded with your hospitals that you're working with. I mean, if you're in that many categories, you know a hospital business pretty well. Mm -hmm. We do. Uh, so... I just kind of want to touch base on, on this. I saw a study by Ian Wire that said, um, you know, in five years or ten years, uh, you know, most hospitals say they want to go at risk with their contracts with suppliers. And um, I, I'm just wondering, conceivably, you know, how many companies do you think can handle that sort of arrangement where they can say, you know, we'll, you know, take our cut when, when you're saving money or things like that. I mean, how many people are, we're talking about a new paradigm in hospitals. How many companies are really in present Very day? small percentage. Let's take it. Our industry is not just the big guys everybody knows. The majority of our companies have 50 employees or less. Mm -hmm. How can those kind of companies in that size honestly take it on? It's the large companies. We'll find ways to do that and, you know, You'll take more sutures, or you buy more of my dialysis machines, or, or, or more of my band-aids, or whatever. I might be able to take those kind of risks because I can share share it over a large, uh, um, large product range, and somehow it's going to work out. Because if that person doesn't need uh, clinical nutrition, it needs enteral nutrition. I've got both, mm -hmm. right? So somehow I probably companies our size can work on those capitated risk-sharing agreements. But the majority of our industry, I don't think could. Uh, I've never thought about it. I'd have to discuss it truly. We do not, we're not really in those kind of agreements yet. Mm -hmm. uh, would I run away from them? Probably not. But I don't have a model yet where I would see it work. But I don't think it would work for the rest of our, uh, for the majority of our industry. So, I mean, are we headed for, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I say we because I'm embedded with you guys all the time. But well, it's I'm not my, my skin on the, in, in the game you. here. But, I mean, are you guys... Do you think the industry is is ready for the paradigm shift that the, that the customers are sort of signaling they want? I, I've made I've gone through so many paradigm shifts <laughs> that they don't scare me. Let's put it that way. Gosh, was DRGs were they a paradigm shift or what? I mean, was that going to change our life? Yeah, it didn't change very much. Okay. <laughs> so let's wait for that paradigm shift to come. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about it in five years from now. I'll, I'll, I'll accept your invitation. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you, you, I've, I saw recently um, a video of you on um, Representative Upton's 21st Century Cures meeting. And, um, you know, you, you discussed how the U.S. is lagging the EU in terms of pace of innovation. And you 
quoted a VC who said that companies should only go after the U.S. market when you have cash flow and are not dependent on investors. Um, how did how did we get here to that sort of? How did it happen, or how do we get away from it? Well, let's go both. Why I mean, you let's first of all, you. Had, I suspenders. mean, first of all, and you you were there. The commissioner, Peggy Amberg, was not really happy with you. I can tell you that, if you saw it. Uh, and yet, she's really trying to do the right stuff. The FDA is really trying hard. But it starts with why. First of all, it's too expensive and takes too long to get products approved here. And when you have them approved, it takes, again, too long to get reimbursement for it. But I'm preaching to the crowd here. And that's what happened. Europe, faster, less expensive. So if I have a new product, let's go over there, get it approved, generate cash flow, and then start the U.S. market. Why should I make my life twice as hard staying here in the U.S.? And that's happening. And as I said there, every panel that I go to I, for, for emerging markets, the first thing the panel, one of the panelists says, go to Europe. I told, you know, the 21st Cure Initiative, I think, is really important. The Chairman Upton, that's bipartisan. And they want to hear this stuff. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Hamburg was really, she is considerate. I mean, she was a bit defensive there. But all in all, with, with, with Medufa and Fidesia, they're going that direction. They've agreed. We have, with, we, we have with the industry an agreement. So they're trying to improve, and I think we can get back there. Because it's not only the newest products. I mean, don't you hate to see that the Europeans are two or three uh, uh, generations ahead of us in some product areas, and our patients can't have them? Doesn't that bother you? And that these clinical trials are occurring, and all this business is occurring abroad, not in this country? Doesn't that bother you? It's got to bother you. So that's happening. Can we get it back? I think we can get it back. And I think the FDA is working with us. Jeff Shuren, great partner with us, Medical Device Industry Consortium. What a great idea that he founded together with the FDA, and they're coming up with good ideas. And we know that Fidesia, Kenny, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're going to get data that shows that FDA approvals are actually accelerating. We're seeing more and we're seeing faster. Mm -hmm. So we're going in the right direction. We, we, we can get it done. And then you have something else on top of all this with a new product. You have this broken legal system in this country. What a rotten legal system this is. Uh, that just So if you come out with a new product, it's risky. You get sued, and you're immediately, it's just, it's, you, 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 a small startup can hardly pay the discovery part of a, uh, of a lawsuit. Mm -hmm. So I think that's how we got there. We can get back there. We still have a very strong industry, strongest industry in the world when it comes to medical devices. Uh, most of us still are trying to do our business here. And I think we can get there. I think we've got to get, the FDA is working with us to get better. Uh, we heard pay, at, at the AdvoMed uh, MedTech conference, we heard uh, the commissioner saying, we're going to start maybe accepting computer simulations instead of expensive clinical trials. We're looking at other ways to help you guys get your products approved less expensive and fa faster. Well, hallelujah, thank you. We are being heard, and th the FDA is working with us. And for that, we're very thankful. You always beat on the FDA. Well, not always. They're trying. And let's give them recognition for that, and let's work with them, and let's make it a better world. From that perspective, I think it can be, and I think it can come back. And those are jobs that can come back, and those are clinical trials that can come back. I really think so. Let's ask some nice questions. Oh, good. Good. Thank you. <laughs> You really got me going. <laughs> I, I knew I would. Um, your dad was a vet, right? Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about 
um, growing up in that sort of environment. Your dad was a German national? My dad was a German refugee uh, from East Germany, jumped the wall. There wasn't a wall in those days, but mm -hmm. that's what you said when you went from East Germany and overnight stole his uh, certificates. My mother uh, broke into the University of Leipzig and stole his transcripts so that he could finish his, uh, his veterinary school in Western Germany. And he's still yet to this day, and he'll hold that record forever, he's passed away now, uh, the, the youngest vet to ever graduate from vet school in Germany. Because of the war, they had shorter schools and they had a shorter vet school time. Mm -hmm. So with 23, he was a doctor med vet, worked here then two years as a grocery boy and a gardener until he got his license to practice. Then we moved to Iowa, the great state of Iowa. <laughs> yeah, and it was great. As a boy, little boy, it was super. I, I, you know, my dad had this beautiful practice, and uh, he was a racehorse specialist, too, but he did big cattle uh, and also small animals. He did everything. So it was, uh, it was really cool um, to go out with my dad and, you know, um, to catch cattle out there, and, and he lassoed it in from the truck, and we were out there treating, and when we did the vaccinations, Work. Everybody worked all day, and it was like Thanksgiving. Every time we worked on vaccinations during the summer, the farmers would bring out everything they had, and it was Thanksgiving. I'll never forget those times. So it was a great time. Thanks for that. I took my pony to school. I could ride with my pony to school. I don't <laughs> think that's legal anymore. So it was great to work up in that environment. But one thing was for sure, I didn't want to become a vet. Yeah, he was disappointed, right? That you yeah. Didn't fall he, he, the but I don't. <laughs> so he, he wanted me to become a vet or a doctor, and uh, I don't. I can't see blood. I'm not really good with sick people. <laughs> I don't want to have anything to do with numbers. So I became a lawyer. And look where I am now. <laughs> now you're right. I what screwed up my stuff? career for sure. <laughs> and by the way, in the meantime, I like patients. Yeah, you get to learn to work with sick people. And uh, uh, one of the worst things that you do with those, for you example. You don't like blood and you don't like numbers, but you run one of the world's yeah, that's why. Yeah, no, companies. that's why I'm saying I screwed, I screwed up my career. But you know, it, and, and now in the meantime, I don't have problems with patients and going in and sure. and, and, and maybe even scrubbing it if I have to. Although, but uh, one place I was just at the University of Heidelberg, looking at our new pump setups, beautiful brand new ICU for kid, children and babies. That's the worst place to go to. And you see these little oh, babies. Ah, oh, gosh, I, I tear up when I think about it. That's the worst place. That's also part of our business to see that kind of environment and what's happening. When you go in there and the next time you say, what was it with that baby? Did it make it? And they say, yeah. And you have part of that? Don't tell me that doesn't make you feel good. It sure oh, makes me feel good. Absolutely. Um, I don't know how we got from veterinarian to babies in Hollywood. Okay. but yeah, okay. It's free-flowing. So, yeah. This is what it's all about. Um, so... You also grew up part of your uh, childhood in Germany, too, right? And then you went from Iowa. Well, I went to Iowa. You've got to get Iowa, out of Iowa by the time you're a teenager, yeah. at least in that part of the uh, But and I love the great state of Iowa, but, you know, it is different. And uh, I went to German boarding school. My dad was a boarding school. His dad went to boarding school. So it was kind of a tradition. My son went to boarding school. So I grew up then in Germany and stayed there, and then I went to law school there. And you spent part of your career working in Germany. Yes. Although I'm a German attorney by education. I also have an American law degree. Mm -hmm. Something you normally keep for yourself, but between us friends, I'll share that. Uh, so I, I have a Georgetown law degree, and then I started as a young attorney in Munich. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the way they do business in Germany and the way they do business in the United States from your experience? Everything is much more regulated. It really is. First, the laws all in codes. It's a very secure environment when you're stepping into the law. Case law is not a real good thing to live by because that case law can change tomorrow. 
or they can decide something that hasn't been decided before and you ran right into it. So everything's in codes there. The registers, everything is much more transparent in this country. If you, somebody owes you something, we have a very efficient system to get your money. You file a, a certain certificate with a court and you send that to the, the person who owes you. That person doesn't pay or doesn't, uh, uh, or, or uh, then you automatically get a title and can go. If that pe person th thinks it doesn't owe, then they, they uh, object to it. It immediately goes to court and then it's decided there. It's a real smooth system. I think business in Germany is easier and more predictable uh, when it comes to what do you have to do to get this done. Mm -hmm. Is there an environment you prefer, or is that? I like both of them, yeah. but I'm very much. I have the privilege of having, knowing the legal systems in both countries. That makes it for me relatively easy. But to be honest, when it comes to the predictability of everything's going, I think I prefer Germany over the United States. I'd rather live here and do business there. But uh, we're still pioneers here in many aspects. This country is still driven by pioneership. I truly believe that. I also read that you don't like to live more than 10 miles from where you work. That's true. And the reason is why I do not work at home. Now, unfortunately, these little tech things, it kind of changed that all a little bit. But I used to not ever work at home. Mm -hmm. My wife and I have a deal. I work 70 hours a week. I'm every Saturday in the, in the office and mostly Sundays as well. But not because it has to be. I actually love what I do, and I, I don't mind doing this. Uh, but if I start working at home, I might not stop. And my wife and I had a deal. Okay, when you're at home, no work. You can take a telephone call maybe, but no papers, nothing. So that's why I always drive to work. And if I'd have to commute, then I'd lose that on Saturdays and Sundays as well. So that's kind of the reason. I read something like some, you know, they worship, everybody worships Steve Jobs and sort of the tech world. And I read an article the other day that said that he didn't, he wore the same thing every day because he didn't want to suffer from decision fatigue. I'm not going into Steve Jobs. <laughs> not going Is that about decision fatigue? Yeah, no, just, I don't have. Uh, that's one no thing I don't have. Oh, give me something to decide on. I will. I love it. 